0: Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Stories of Scotland. It's Annie here, and I'm visiting Linlithgow Palace to learn about the history of this fabulous building, and a little bit about the high level masonry conservation work. Linlithgow Palace is an incredible monument, cared for by Historic Environment Scotland. I arrived one brisk November morning by a very short train journey from Edinburgh. At the active site of Linlithgow Palace, I met two incredibly knowledgeable heritage professionals who work for Historic Environment Scotland. I interview them and they teach me about the palace, its history and its masonry. My favourite bit is when they teach me how to say Linlithgow correctly. This is an incredibly fun episode, and I hope you enjoy it. We cover some intriguing history of Linlithgow Palace and the monarchs who lived here, and also discuss some very big issues like climate heritage. So I'll play these interviews, and you can learn along with me about this fascinating building. We're doing our interviews in the gift shop of Glendithgow. I'm sat in between a stand for silver Celtic inspired jewellery and a big stack of Outlander books. So please could you introduce yourself for the listeners?
1: Yeah, so I am Dr. Nikki Scott. I am a very simply titled Senior Cultural Significance Advisor in the cultural resources team. So I, I basically look after our statements of significance. So that is a document that we have for every one of our 336 properties that summarises what's important about it, why we basically look after it and curate it and make sure it's still there
0: for future generations. And how did you get into that? Well
1: I've been with the cultural resources team for about 10 years now working as a cultural resources advisor so that's been involved in uh, research into the properties helping to advise on lots of conservation works that happen at site and I saw the usefulness of these statements the the interest of them the range of them and so when the previous post holder retired I jumped at the chance to apply for it and was fortunately successful so i've been in this post maybe a couple of months now but with the team for about 10 years
0: so with doctor in your name that means you've got an exciting phd somewhere what was that on
1: I did my PhD many years ago I, at the University of Stirling on the court and household of James I of Scotland. So the James I who began to shape Linlithgow Palace into the magnificent building it is now. An interesting character and was fortunate to you know pass my defence
0: of that in 2008, I think that was, so quite a few years ago now. So Nikki gave us a tour of Linlithgow Palace up round these incredible spiral staircases. She beams whenever she imagines Linlithgow a few centuries ago. This place has her completely under its spell. So what makes you passionate about the history of the monarchy? I think it was more the
1: history of the court that I found interesting than the history of the monarchy. So many studies of the monarchy have focused on the politics of the reign. Whereas looking at the court and household, it's more about the culture. So it's looking at the architecture, what's being built, it's looking at the books, what's the monarch reading. In James the first case, what is he actually writing himself, he was a poet. It's looking at how his household was organised, how did he staff the various positions of his household and what impact did that then have on his reign. So that was much more interesting to me than just the monarchy itself. And nobody had really been looking at it for Scotland. Um, so it was just a great opportunity to jump at something that was new.
0: Just out of curiosity, was James I a good poet or was he a wee bit cringe?
1: Uh, he He's well regarded, shall we say. And his works have stood the test of time. You know, people still study it and quote it. It's not necessarily to my own personal tastes, shall we say. It can be a bit flowery in places. But it's essentially a love poem to the woman that would become his wife, in a sense. So, you know, you, you've got to give the, the man a wee bit of credit. He, he was trying to win his love.
0: So we are sitting in the gift shop of Linlith. Linlith. <laughs> you could say lithky if it's easier. lithky lithky <laughs> The Scots pronunciation. So we're sitting in the gift shop of Lithgow Palace. Can you describe the building for our audience? What does it look like? Not not the gift shop, but the palace itself. So, Lithgow Palace, the Palace, is
1: a massive sandstone structure. The walls are many metres high. It's a quadrangular shape, so it's enclosed on all four sides around a central courtyard. Each Side of that quadrangle is sort of built uh, by a different monarch essentially. So there's a lot of different styles in the way each range looks. Some have small windows, some have big windows, some have very fancy carvings over them, some are very plain. There's all sorts of blocked up windows, blocked up doors. So it's a real mishmash uh, of styles because it's been adapted so often over the centuries. And of course, at the centre of that quadrangle is the most amazing fountain, what we think may well be the oldest working fountain in Great Britain, certainly the oldest working one in Scotland, which was built in the time of James V, a magnificent statement of his status and wealth and importance and
0: really celebrating
1: his power as a Scottish monarch.
0: Amazing. And what's your favourite view of this building? Oh, my favourite view. Of the building or from the building? Both.
1: Both. (laughs) So, of the building, I would have to say from the other side of the loch. So there's a lovely path you can take that walks around the the loch by which the palace sits. And looking at it from across the water, you just see it sitting on its little promontory. It's silhouetted against the sky. You can see St Michael's Parish Church just behind it and it's just a magnificent sight. Uh, it really is stunning. From the palace, probably the view from Queen Margaret's Bower, which is the highest part that uh, visitors could normally access. Named after Margaret Tudor, wife of James IV. And so you can get all the way up, and you have views that go all across West Lothian. On a clear day, you really can't see for miles. You can see exactly why the palace is situated where it is, You can see right across the whole region. You can see it's situated against the borough. You get a view of the the parish church next door. See up into the Bathgate Hills. Uh, It's just a magnificent view from there.
0: It feels like we're in the shadows of kings and queens, doesn't it? it
1: absolutely there's so much you know uh, history has happened here you know and it's it's a place where they came to enjoy as well so it's got that sort of warm friendly feeling almost that some places don't necessarily have are there any secrets
0: of this building
1: i love all the little passageways in the building I visited a lot here when I was younger, and it's one of my favourite memories, is, is exploring. So you go up all the little staircases, there's a staircase at each corner of the quadrangle that you can follow right to the top of the building. But off each of those staircases, there's all these little passageways which lead into little rooms, and you can peer out into open spaces which no longer have their floors, and you can get lost in them. So it's all those little nooks and crannies but as well you can be turning a corner and suddenly you're faced with a lovely bit of carving sort of a lovely carved ceiling boss at the top of a staircase or a little bit of carving that, that's just on the wall or underneath the stair and you really get that sense that they are sparing no expense in how much they are spending on these little details that most people visiting the palace never would have seen but there you are, you turn that little corner and wow, there's just this stunning little bit of carving, so it's that Ability to explore and get lost in the site that I love.
0: So I'm here because Historic Environment Scotland have a big project going on that's inspecting the masonry. But I would love us to be able to talk about when this palace was first built. How these stones came to be here. Well, when exactly it was first
1: built is a bit of a mystery. There's certainly been a royal manor here since at least the 1100s. And we used to think that building was destroyed by fire in the 1400s. And then James I comes along once he is released from English captivity and starts building a magnificent new palace that we see today. But some research that we did a few years back actually suggests that there is an older stone building embedded within the current structure. So there's little fragments of staircases that are kind of hidden away in cupboards. And that tells us that it's older than what James I was building. But exactly when that stone structure went up, we don't know. That could have been the earliest building that went up in the 1100s, or it could have been built in the 1200s or even 1300s. We're really not sure. But certainly the palace that we see today began life in the 1420s with James I looking to really cement his position as king when he returned from England. And then his successors basically just added on, developing it until it became the fully enclosed quadrangle that we see today.
0: And do you think this palace made that statement for him? I think it absolutely did make that statement.
1: I'm not necessarily sure his nobles agreed that it was a good statement to make. James I did come to a rather sticky end, being murdered by his own nobles in a sewer in Perth. So he was not exactly the most popular of monarchs, but given that he spent probably in the region of about £10,000 on building the the palace, which was a good chunk of his annual income w- w- was going on building this, his nobles weren't exactly thrilled at that, especially since they were used to getting along without a king and weren't happy he was spending money on palaces rather than giving them pensions and other bribes basically to behave
0: Great Palace dreadful death <laughs> very dreadful death <laughs> but it, it's kind
1: of James all over he, he could have escaped from the sewer but he'd had it blocked up because he kept losing tennis balls down the drain for it and so he'd ordered it blocked up and that's kind of James in a nutshell for me didn't quite have his eye on the big picture a lot of the time <laughs>
0: Well, I'm barely speechless, but he died in a sewer because he blocked up the exit to keep his tennis balls from falling down. Yeah, he was, I think the phrase, not
1: the sharpest tool in the box is one that has occurred to me often when I've been studying James.
0: So we've got a few other monarchs connected to Linlithgow Palace. Can you run through who really stands out for you?
1: I mean, obviously, James I is one of my favourites. He may have been an idiot, but he's my idiot. So I really like him. Obviously, the most famous monarch associated here is Mary, Queen of Scots. Uh, She was born here in a little chamber in the west range of the palace. And it was here that, at six days old, the news of her father's death was received and where she became Queen of Scots. And it's one of the most asked questions here is... Where was Mary Queen of Scots born? Can we see the room? Unfortunately, there's no direct access into it because the floors and things have been lost. But you can sort of look up into the space and get that sense of where this, you know,
0: young child entered the world. There's not a floor remaining in the room where Mary Queen of Scots was born. And there's not a roof either. But we can stand a story below and look up to the four standing walls that would have been this chamber. Yes. And what would that room have looked like when she was born? That room would have been absolutely luxurious, like every room
1: in this palace that would have been occupied by the royals. Today we see bare stone, but these walls would have been plastered, they would have been brightly painted, they would have been hung with rich tapestries and embroideries. The beds would have had rich drapery, really sumptuous fabrics, velvets and taffetas in stunning colours with embroidery on them. I mean, these places would have been an absolute feast for the visual senses, you know, really rich depth of colour, just the height of luxury, they were designed to be comfortable places to live and this would have been absolutely the pinnacle within the Scottish crown.
0: It sounds sublime. So this building plays quite a big role in Scottish history. Is that fair to say?
1: I think it's places like Stirling and Edinburgh that usually get the the headlines, as it were. They're the places where the big military events take place. You know, Edinburgh has its claim to fame as being one of the most besieged places in the British Isles. Stirling, obviously two of the major battles in Scottish history take place within the shadow of it. So Linlithgow is less dramatic than that, but it is the place where the royals came to retreat from a lot of that. It's the place where they came to relax, to entertain friends, to try and get a bit of peace and quiet. I mean, big things do happen here. A parliament's held here at one point when they're trying to escape playing in Edinburgh. Obviously, before the palace as it currently stands is built. We've got Edward I making camp here during the Wars of Independence and it's the the fortifications he's building that gives the area around the palace its name. The Peel comes from the fortifications uh, that he's building. So that legacy lives on. But I think there is a a joy in that day-to-dayness for the monarchs that we so often miss we forget that these were real people with real lives. They weren't just monarchs. You know, they had hopes and dreams and pastimes that they liked to do. And this was where they could get just away from it all a little bit to, to do that. And that, for me, I think makes it really important, even if you don't have major battles and CGs going on on the doorstep.
0: Incredible. So do you have any favourite stories or histories about Lithki Palace? I think my
1: favourite one would probably be from the 1580s, when James VI is here with just a limited number of friends, and he has to intervene when a couple of them are going to go off and have a duel. Essentially, they'd been basically having a bit of a kickabout with a football. Whether there was a bad tackle or... you know Certainly there was some shoving involved. A bit of a punch-up ensued. And in an attempt to sort their differences, they were going to go off and have a duel. Obviously, the king did not want his nobles doing so, so he intervened and managed to sort everything out. But I think it's a good illustration of how seriously Scots have always taken their football.
0: (laughs) A hundred percent. So there's a giant feasting hall in Linlithgow Palace. Can we discuss what this kind of hall is used for? what would it have been like?
1: Well, the, the Great Hall, as we can normally refer to it, would be the biggest single space in the palace. So this is the bit that was built by James I as part of his building campaign. And it's really, it's a massive space that would have been used for public celebrations. It would be where the monarch would entertain ambassadors and important visitors, where the big celebrations would have been held. And this would have been a place where they really, you know, they're really going to town, displaying their status. So the walls are plastered and painted. You've got their finest tapestries being hung on the walls to provide colour and warmth. You would have painted ceilings. The Great Hall was decorated with statues. So the statues are gone, but we have the niches remaining. This was probably monarchs of times gone past so that James could emphasise his lineage. Again, these would have been brightly painted and decorated, so really almost garish to modern eyes. But without electric lighting, much more subdued. So it would have provided real colour and warmth. You would have had the monarch and their consort at the top table nearest the fireplace, so getting the full benefit of the warmth. Not that it's ever cold in Scotland, of course. <laughs> and they're being lit by the biggest window, so that. Full emphasis of everyone in the hall is on them. And then arranged out before them would be other tables where people would be arranged according to their status. So the more important you were, the closer to the monarch you would be able to sit. And the less important you were, the further away you were. And the further away you were, the less were your chances of getting the tastiest bits of food as well.
0: And what would they have been eating in its heyday? They would have been
1: eating all sorts of things. Roast meat, so beef was often on the menu. Uh, pigs, uh, so roast pork is on the menu. Perhaps, you know, suckling pig or roast pork. Various pies and pastries would have been made. Meat was a big thing. Obviously, on non-meat days, uh, you would have various fish dishes. Salmon was very big. Herring, also uh, a big thing on the menu. Occasionally, roast owl. Some things that might seem a bit odd to us, eels uh, were a big thing, and there was an eel trap uh, within the loch, so they were sort of storing them and producing them from there. Not the tastiest looking things to, to me, but they were very much a delicacy at the time, so quite a varied menu.
0: So how much of this menu would have been imported?
1: It's difficult to say because we've lost a lot of the records but they're certainly importing fine wines from uh, France and Germany across the Low Countries but a lot of things are just being produced domestically so they're bringing salmon down from Inverness they're bringing cattle from Ayrshire pigs are being bought in Glasgow we have those records so a lot of it is within Scotland and within the British Isles but they really... The really fancy stuff is usually alcohol because it travels relatively well, and that's being brought. Uh, herbs and spices as well are big things. James the First actually introduces an office to specifically look after spices because they are that important within the household. So they're doing their best to really flavour the dishes that they're producing.
0: That's what you want, isn't it?
1: Nobody likes bland food. <laughs>
0: There's also a chapel at Linlithgow Palace, so what's the significance of that? The chapel would have been
1: a private space for the royal household to hear Mass. So public worship, public devotion was a really important part of medieval kingship, medieval queenship. And so being seen to be devout was incredibly important for a monarch. So the chapel provided a place for them to hear mass and to be seen to be hearing mass. And again, this would have been a lavishly decorated space. So the chapel here would have been the ceiling would have been painted blue and decorated with gold stars. The priests had vestments uh, that we know matched that uh, kind of design. There would have been tapestries on the wall, statuary again of saints richly painted and decorated, a chair of estate for the monarch to sit in emphasising their status. And they would have been able to, as I say, hear mass privately on a regular basis there. For more public occasions, they could obviously just nip across the the now car park to St Michael's Parish Church for a more public uh, occasion of worship. But the chapel enabled them to do that on a much more regular basis without having that sort of hassle of taking a few dozen extra steps.
0: So the palace is closed at the moment, but is it still worthwhile visiting the nearby grounds? It is absolutely still worth visiting the nearby grounds. You can still walk around
1: the outside of the building. You can see some of the magnificent carving that covers the exterior. So, for instance, the the really large-scale armorial panel that decorates the east entrance, you can see that. We do have some information panels available where people can read a little about the the history, see some of the reconstruction illustrations we've created to get a sense of what the place looked like in its heyday. You can also take a walk around the loch, so it's the, the largest freshwater loch in the area. And is a site of special scientific interest. So important populations of wild uh, fowl uh, inhabit there. So you can take a walk around and, and enjoy, you know, the the grounds and the scenery. And definitely, Linlithgow, the borough itself has, you know, lots of curious little shops and cafes and things to enjoy as well. So definitely still worth visiting.
0: I've absolutely loved my visit to Linlithgow. All the wee independent shops and cafes. It's a charming place to be.
1: Yes, yes.
0: All the views are just spectacular. I could not believe this was such a short train journey from Edinburgh. Blink, and you've
1: kind of missed the journey. <laughs> uh, like, you know, before you know where you are, you're pulling into Llyswen Station. It's a short walk up the the High Street and up the Kirk Gate to to get to the the Palace, and then you can explore around the Peel. There's playgrounds. Yeah. There's definitely still things to, to see and do around here, even though the palace itself is currently shut.
0: So a little bit of a silly question for you. You can have a dinner party with three figures from Scottish history, dead or alive. You're having it in Linlithgow Palace. Who would you invite along?
1: Alive or dead? Okay. Well, one of them definitely has to be James the James I. Having done my thesis on them. I need to ask and see just how wildly wrong my conclusions about them were. That would be amazing. I think they're not named, but I would love to speak to one of the masons that actually built the palace. Just to get a sense of what they felt in building this place. Perhaps even one of the, the sculptors who, who are making the armorial or some of the statuary that used to decorate the place. And if I'm allowed someone alive, I think I would have to go for the big yin. Because Billy Connolly is the greatest stand-up the world has ever known. I worship at his feet and I would love to just have a conversation over dinner with him. I, I think they would probably have a lot to talk about.
0: They both love a party. Exactly, yes, yes.
1: I mean, we can't say anything about whether they would, you know, James liked to dance around naked the way Billy has in the past. Um, But who knows?
0: Well, historians can never be certain on that one, right? We can never be certain of anything. (laughs) We just have to do our best guesses from what the
1: sources tell us.
0: Oh, marvellous. And what would you put on the menu?
1: What would I put on the menu? Roast pork, that certainly seems to have been a favourite here at Linlithgow in the past, anyway. Um, I would be forgoing the roast owl, or anything weird and exotic like that. But yeah, I think roast pork maybe, or maybe just a, a nice high tea. Maybe, maybe we could get some of our caterers at one of our other sites to bring us along one of their nice cream teas and enjoy a, a scone. And we could have a, a debate about which goes first, the, the clotted cream or the jam.
0: What are you most looking forward to when Linlithgow Palace reopens?
1: I think I just want people to be able to come and explore it again and to get as lost in it as I enjoy being and just explore all those little nooks and crannies for themselves and maybe go on a unicorn hunt while they're about (laughs) it.
0: I can't believe how many unicorns we've seen. They seem to be carved everywhere there's a fair few. There's a fair few. So they could
1: make it a challenge to to hunt them down and count them up.
0: Are stories still being revealed about the palace from the masonry? I think we always
1: learn something new. Every time we look at a site, uh, we learn something new. And I think the masonry project is giving us a chance to get up close and personal with areas of the monument that are normally inaccessible. So hopefully that's going to teach us a lot more about how the place is built the the sequence of it being built so one of the things that the project is giving us is the opportunity to get up close and personal with bits of the building that we don't normally get that chance to so using things like the bup the mobile elevated working platform that allows us to just reach the heights of the walls we can get up close to bits of the sculpture And we can examine them much more closely than we've been able to previously so hopefully this is going to lead to a few new insights
0: that'll enable us to conserve and manage the site for future generations a massive thank you to nikki for sharing with us the stories of this incredible building and some of the monarchs associated with this place next i'm going to be speaking to krista who is an expert in all things stone masonry and is going to be telling us a bit about the conservation project underway, which is inspecting the masonry. I can't overstate how much Crystal lights up when she's discussing the stonework. The stonework is something that I often don't think of when I see a building. I look at the building as a whole and not as tens of thousands of individual stones, but but when you hear Krista talk about them, they become truly magnificent. So I hope you enjoy this wee interview. So please could you introduce yourself for the listeners? Okay, my name is Krista
2: Gerd-Wilker and I'm lead inspector with the High Level Masonry Project. So I lead a team of four inspectors to carry out these inspections across our states, mostly in the Edinburgh region and the North region.
0: What is the high-level masonry project? (laughs) It's an inspection of a whole estate, all of
2: our sites, any structure that's above 1.5 metres high, basically. We're carrying out essentially a risk assessment of the fabric to see whether anything is at risk of falling. Is
0: that a fun job? What do you like about it?
2: I love working at height.
0: (laughs) We laughed here because Krista was incredibly enthusiastic about getting me to the highest point of the palace to show me the masonry from up above. We entered into a mobile elevating work platform or a machine that I would call a cherry picker, which took us 33 metres into the air. It doesn't sound like a lot, but in the cold November air, it felt very high for me. Krista used the controls to raise us up above the non-existent rooftops of Linlithgow Palace. Whenever we were in the air, Krista had an infectious smile. But her passion is not just in the height, it's also in the stone. But also,
2: I'm a stone conservator by trade and I've been working a lot of these sites on specific parts of a building, carved parts mostly, the sculptural parts, and I've always thought you know, there's so much else that feeds into the decay of what I'm working on, what I'm trying to rectify. We really need to see the bigger picture. So I'm really excited that I get to look at the whole building in quite intimate detail, frankly, and we get up so close to everything. Everything gets touched. We feel everything. We hear everything because we use a lot of acoustic methods to uh, look for any kind of decay. we get a really, really good understanding of what goes on in a building, how it functions and how it doesn't function, and how it's impacted by the weather and and particularly by increased rainfall as a result of climate change.
0: So we'll pick up on that in a second. For me, I didn't actually realise what high level meant until I visited the site. How do you get to the high levels? That's a tricky bit because most of
2: our sites are built in such a way that they're difficult to access on purpose, a lot of them are defensive structures. And we also have a lot of ecclesiastical buildings which are surrounded by graveyards and inside have graves as well. Um, So getting access equipment into situ is is really, really tricky. There's a lot of pre-inspection planning that goes on where we research uh, what's below ground as well as above ground to make sure that we, we don't put ourselves at risk when we carry out the inspections because it is a high risk activity but we're also not risking any harm to the monuments. We don't want to suddenly sink into a grave We don't want to hit anything. Um, There's a lot to be considered before we go inside.
0: I've seen a lot of people at all levels of the building using ropes for access and also using the MOOP, cherry picker style machine. Yeah, MOOP is a mobile elevating
2: working platform. So those are the two main forms of access because they're essentially mobile forms of access. Our preferred method is a moop, wherever we can use a moop, but we will use that because that means we're not in any way connected to a building or a wall. Uh, we're completely free and independent of it, which is the safest method for us and it also means that we can ourselves carry out the inspections because we've all been trained to carry out these inspections. Whereas when we work with rope access guys, where we can, we use um, our stonemasons who work in the rope access team, but mostly we work with outside contractors and they wear a GoPro camera and we watch what they're doing through the, through the GoPro. So they're kind of our eyes and ears and hands on the wall and we record what, what they see and the actions that
0: they might be taking as well. So you mentioned earlier that this project is to address the decay of the stone that is being caused by the climate crisis. Could you elaborate on this please? Well we
2: know from climatic data that there's an increased rainfall and we've all noticed these effects ourselves as, as well and in uh, our sites We've noticed that there has been more incidents of fabric fall, and we want to keep our visitors as well as our staff safe. So that's why we set up a small, sort of multi-skilled team that started looking into how we could carry out tactile inspections, where we can really get close up. Because the thing is, we've always been carrying on out uh, condition surveys, but they're usually done from the ground with binoculars or from vantage points, but always with binoculars a yeah, distance away. You don't see fine cracks and you can't hear anything, and it's the Areas where stone is delaminating particularly um, that are most prolific in terms of falling. And those areas you can not often see, you need to tap it, you need to hear it, or you need to be able to see really fine cracks. And the climate change has exacerbated the whole thing because most of our sites in the central belt certainly are from porous sandstone, so they absorb water. And water is just about the most harmful thing to stone because it demineralizes stone, it causes vegetation growth. The roots go into joints and break up stone as well. And we have, unfortunately, also a lot of salts in our masonry, partially because it's coastal climate, but also because of works carried out during the first half of the 20th century where cement, with the best of intentions, was pumped as grout into our walls. Because then it was thought that this will last forever. Nothing is going to destroy this. This is going to make everything absolutely bomb-proof. And of course it isn't. Nothing is. (laughs) But we now have this stuff in our walls. It's an irreversible action that was carried out then. And the salts start to come through and interact with the stone and cause a lot of damage as well. So yeah, so rain in combination with salt, in combination with frost, in combination with plant growth, all bad news for stone.
0: Can I ask, how do you actually listen to a stone? You just tap it and it's a bit like a drum. If a surface area
2: delaminates or detaches from, from the, the, the rest of the stone, it sounds hollow. So
0: you just get them more for resonance. And then the stone just whispers back at you, repair me, please. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been touring the incredible Linlithgow Palace today. Could you give me a description of this building for our listeners? Yeah, it's an incredibly
2: impressive building. It's six stories high. It's built in four wings around a central quadrangle courtyard. And in the centre of the courtyard is this three-story wedding-tier-like fountain full of sculptural detail, full of symbolry and just an absolute showpiece of uh, royal exuberance and pride and ego, frankly. Um, <laughs> it's a very special place. It's a very, very special place. The stone is a beautiful sort of orange, light brown, buff sandstone, so it's, it's quite golden colour almost from the distance. It's
0: a really stunning sight. And I feel like you get some of the best views. It's incredible, as you and your team seem to be up in every nook and cranny. That's exactly it. We need to get up into every nook and cranny.
2: That is the best part of the job. We get to see things that nobody has seen or people have not seen for a very, very long time and might have been forgotten about. We also get to spot defects that have never been noted before because they're not visible from the ground, they're not visible from anywhere else, so you know there might be some, some cracks in the wallhead, for instance, because of structural movement, which in themselves there's probably nothing to worry about. But if you, for instance, see a pattern of cracks, then you might start thinking, oh, something might be going on here. And that might not be a risk of fall or anything like that, but something that we want to catch early. Um, so this is a really proactive way of you know, inspecting the sites so that we can react quickly and, and, and deal with these defects quickly. And the, the, the great thing, and that, that's something that I'm really proud of, is that we're the first ones to do this. We are the first ones to do this. We've developed this this methodology ourselves, carried out a lot of research, we've done a lot of testing. We're trying to take it further and develop an inspection app out of this that, that will help us going forward. And there's a lot of additional data that comes out of this for other people, other specialists that will help them. When we put all this data together, this is going to be examined by a whole range of specialists, you know, from engineers to stone conservators to scientists who will see what we found, who, who will have access to some of the data, will have access to some of the material that was removed in the process or fallen off, and can analyse that and start making sense of what the decay mechanisms are and how we might best intervene to rectify them.
0: So if you've got a cracked piece of stone and it can't be put back where it should be, then where will it end up?
2: Mm-hmm. If, if we can't put it back, and it is unsafe, then we might have to remove it. We don't like to, but we might have to record exactly where it came from. We retain it, and then there's a sort of decision-making process that follows on from that. If it can't be put back, then it might be passed to our collections team. If it's got any carved detail on it, any kind of shaping, it will go to the collections team, even if it's something like a mason's mark and retained by them. If there's nothing, there's no sort of carved or human-made surface on it, then it would be passed to our science team and they can use it for analysis, for stone matching, for instance, where we need to replace stone uh, with a compatible stone and also to see whether there's any salts in there, what kind of salts they are, how they might be impacting the stone decay mechanism. So there's a whole raft of information that can be taken out of what other people might consider to be just dross. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but this is such an important and emerging field, isn't it? Yeah. This is innovative climate heritage work, looking at the impact of the climate crisis on heritage sites. Mm -hmm. It's an exciting project, right? Yes, it's it's exciting and a little bit depressing, but (laughs) (laughs) the the fact that
2: it's happening. But it's exciting that we're leading in this and that we can have other organisations take this forward as well because this is not just going to impact on us. Yes, our buildings, because they're mostly ruinous structures, are particularly vulnerable because of the open wall heads. But other heritage organisations will have the same problems. Even local councils, you know, if you look at historic townscapes, they will have similar problems, hopefully not on that scale, (laughs) because they've got roofs and water shedding mechanisms.
0: (laughs) Ah, yes. So a big part of the Linlithgow buildingscape is the lack of roofing for much of the structure. It's great if you want to see the beautiful Scottish skies, but bad if you want your palace to stand for a really long time as the lack of a roof leaves it exposed to the elements but Linlithgow is an enchanting ruin of the palace it once would have been I find it a truly awe-inspiring place. So what's your favourite feature as a stone conservator? Um,
2: As a stone conservator, it's got to be the fountain (laughs) it's got to be the fountain (laughs) It was the first project I was involved in when I started with then Historic Scotland, and I've been involved in, in you know the initial survey, the taking down, the conser- conservation and the rebuilding, and all the decision making in between. So that was a fantastic project to be involved in.
0: And what does the fountain look like? Uh, it's a three-tier
2: wedding cake arrangement basically. So it's got you've got three basins, and it's just absolutely filled with sculptural detail, slightly bonkers, I think. But it's, yeah, it's beautiful, it's full of symbolery. it's, it's uh, I can't even describe it I've never seen anything similar other than copies of it uh, So there's a copy of it at Tollywood Palace and there's a copy of it at the bottom of the road and it's good as well, Victorian copies but they're nowhere near as good as the original which is inside here
0: Nothing compares to a 16th century three-tiered wedding cake fountain
2: No, and it's the oldest in-situ fountain in Scotland if not Britain
0: That would be one very dry sponge though so has anything unexpected popped up in your inspections
2: we've done a lot of research before and as i said and the thing that we found here was uh, there's bats roosting above one of the entrance doors so we've actually had to install an extra door to stop the noise from traveling through to where they're roosting because of course we're now starting to come quite close to hibernating season as well as we're not there yet we deal with ecologists and they come around and have a look at the sites beforehand to uh, warn us above any restriction that may ha- we might have in relation to flora or fauna. It also includes protected trees, so there will be protected trees in the peel and the grounds outside that we need to avoid so you can't go over that with heavy equipment. And we certainly can't break off any branches and things like that, so and there's so much to consider. But it's great because we, we get to deal with so many different colleagues you know, from a different background. It's really fascinating.
0: So what's the process of actually stabilising the stone? What do you do with it? Lots of different things. It just
2: totally depends on the kind of decay. But generally speaking, we would have to really, you know, as a result of this inspection, we need to see what it shows up, what the main forms of decay are, how it all relates, you know, all the different ranges, all the different faces, how they relate to each other, what what the connection is to really develop an intervention plan. So I can't even hazard, I guess, on that one yet. But a lot of it will centre on, on how can we make this, this site more weather-resistant, really but in a reversible manner. We're not using cement.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a top tip for anyone at home who has got a palace that they want to preserve.
2: Don't use cement.
0: (laughs) Can you think of anything particularly unique about Linlithgow Palace as a site? Oh, God, yeah.
2: It's so special.
0: It is so special. It's,
2: it's, It's a royal palace. It's where Mary Queen of Scots was born such an imposing site. I can't even think of a similar site. I think Edinburgh Castle and uh, Stirling Castle, I mean, lovely as they are, totally boring comparison. <laughs> but that's just my humble opinion, obviously. <laughs> it's it's much more palatial, dare I say. You know, It's it's less defensive. It's got fantastic views over the Peel. You can tell that it was built for for fun, for pleasure. It wasn't built for defence. You know, This is where, not where they bunkered down, uh, but where they had a really good time.
0: It must be so surreal to work here. Just eating your sandwiches at lunchtime in the palace where maybe Queen of Scots was born. <laughs> yeah, every now and then I have to think, wow, you know, James V would have had this view. <laughs> so what's the most satisfying part of working in conservation on a building like this?
2: It's just such a privilege. It's really, really interesting. No day is the same. I learn so much every day, you know, I've I've, I've been doing this. For a long time now, and still every day is a school day as far as I'm concerned. It's it's endlessly fascinating. But I just also love the feeling that what I do contributes to extending the life of the palace or of an aspect
0: of the palace. And do you think that we can make this palace last another few hundred years? Oh, I hope so. Maybe even a millennium?
2: Same amount of time again, at least, I hope. As, as it has, um, it's, you know, it's withstood uh, a fire, it's withstanding climate change so far. I think with the right interventions and good care, it will last much longer. Even if it was left to weather, I think it will still be standing here for a long time. But we would like to see it accessible to visitors and safely accessible the work that we're doing just now.
0: Are there any other lessons that we can learn from this building, from this project? be
2: careful how how you treat them just really consider how how you how you conserve places so this sort of wholesale use of cement grout uh, even them with them with the best of intentions it's just yeah that's just been a major factor in the decay of many of our sites so just just be more careful Con- consider carefully what you're doing
0: so what's the broader benefit of this project then looking at their high level masonry reports
2: you know, this is something that's really, really valuable information that we can share with, with other heritage organisations and partners to help them start up a similar process, basically, so they don't have to reinvent the wheel completely. It is a huge task. And uh, as you will have seen, Lanlithka Palace is a very, very big building. And it, it does take time because we are literally trying to touch every stone. You know, We are trying to go stone by stone to assess its, its safety. And then you have sites like Edinburgh Castle, Fort George, Sterling multiple times the size of Linuska Palace. All of that will take time.
0: I can't even imagine how many stones you're trying to touch. (laughs) must
2: be thousands of them. Yeah, (laughs) I should think so.
0: (laughs) But I think when you're dealing with such an important and precious building, it's a comfort to know someone has touched all of the stones. Just to check in on them, make sure they're okay. (laughs) So, what are your hopes for the future of Lindlithgow Palace itself?
2: Well, I hope that the, the monument can be, can be maintained uh, in its current condition or, or better, you know, for as long as possible and, you know, get people inside the site again, get to uh, get them to enjoy it. It's, it's a fantastic site and this is, you know, you've seen the original site and the authentic site.
0: I think visitors will be delighted when they can come back to the site when it reopens and see Linlithgow Palace for themselves. Though I'm aware that one of the challenges of good conservation work is, if it's done well, it's often invisible. Yes,
2: (laughs) yeah, yeah, Uh, very much so. Um, If if it's visible, if it's really highly visible, then something. like, ooh. (laughs) But yeah, good conservation is generally invisible.
0: Good conservation is ultimately caving for the building, Ensuring that visitors can come for generations and generations into the future.
2: Yeah, d- very much. I mean, we have a lot of sites in, in guardianship, and I think guardianship is a is a very good term generally, whether we outright own them or not. You know, we are just the guardians. This generation is the guardians of, of these sites for the for the future generations. So we want to pass as much of that over and as good nick as we can. Basically, that's my aim, and that's my hope. I mean, we're getting so much information out of this because nobody's looked at the whole building, the whole site, in, in a one uh the way we, we do, you know, up close and personal with every nook and cranny, as you say. So we are learning a lot about the building, about what's going on. Um, and it might not be even immediately clear to us inspectors while we're here on the ground. It's more when afterwards, when all the data is being analysed and put together, that we see... Where the worst areas and why, why is it happening there? What's causing that? Is there water ingress there, for instance, or just what is the defect and what's causing it? And really sort of nail that down a lot better than we than we can just from from visual observations from the ground. And the data that we are collecting will be shared with our engineers, will be shared with our scientists, and, and with our architects and and, and surveyors. And so we're going to have a multi-skilled team look at information or the the, the data that we're getting out of this to really get to the root of, of the problems and, and develop a way of intervening that will be most effective and also most efficient. You know, we, we need to be able to prioritise our resources and, and, and identify where we need to go most. And the baseline data that we're collecting from these surveys will give us that.
0: So how are Historic Environment Scotland prioritising visitors? So we're,
2: we're still trying to get uh, people into our sites as much as we can. Um, obviously, we need to be able to uh, undertake the, the inspections as safely as we can. In some cases, visitors might be able to get into the site, and we just restrict access to a certain part of it where we where we uh, carry out the inspection. Some sites we had to close completely because we're concerned. Where we have the poor sedimentary stone that we have here, for instance, where it's just so vulnerable to decay, and um, um, we found other sites where we've had similar stone that have been problematic. We've just sort of closed these sites temporarily as a precaution. But we are trying to open them as as quickly as as we can. So at the moment, we are are looking at all the sites. We're inspecting all the sites that have current access restrictions in place to try and get through them as quickly as possible and and identify as quickly as possible what we can open. But we're trying to get visitors in and, and allow them to enjoy the sites again as soon as possible.
0: That's wonderful. And I, for one, am grateful for all the work that you're doing. I've got a bit of a silly question to end with, if that's okay with you. You're hosting a dinner party at Linlithgow Palace with three figures from Scottish history, alive or dead. Who do you pick?
2: Yeah, I've been thinking about that one. (laughs) (laughs) So I changed my mind, actually. Initially, I was going to say Mary, Queen of Scots, but now I'm going to go for mum, Marie de Guise, because like me, she was a foreigner to Scotland. I just want to know how she got on. And Alexander Fleming is an absolute hero. What he's done for humanity is unrivaled, I think, with the invention of antibiotics and sharing it freely. And uh, the third one, I think I would pick Black Agnes, Countess of Dunbar. She defended the castle of Dunbar against the Earl of Salisbury in the most, almost hilarious fashion. She only had a few, a handful of folk with her, apparently, servants with her while her husband was away somewhere fighting the English. And she dusted down the wall heads after. The castle was bombed by the Earl of Salisbury and she was just endlessly teasing him and winding him up and just read up about her if you've not heard about her. She sounds an absolute hoot. So she would be a really good one.
0: Marvellous. Is there anything else that you would like to add about the high-level masonry project?
2: No, just asking for a bit of patience. We are working very hard at this. We're working throughout the year. We've trained people. We've uh, massively increased the resources to get this done as quickly as possible, and we really we want nothing more than to see our sites open again to to visitors.
0: And the palace?
2: Well, oh, as soon as it's open, come and visit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> but even just the the, the scenery outside is, is stunning as well. And do do check our website as well because we've got uh, a lot of three D data that's available now where you can do virtual tours through our buildings and. Uh, Then, uh, you know, have a look at those as well, because we're we're, we're trying to bring the visitor experience to our audience as much as we can, even with some of the sites being access restricted.
0: Thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's been phenomenally interesting for me. A massive thank you for listening and joining me on this trip to Linlithgow and for all of your support along the way. Myself and Jenny will be back with a regular episode really soon. So stay tuned. Jenny is currently in a bog finding some incredible tales. So I can't wait for her to squelch back into our lives. Thanks to Historic Environment Scotland for caring for such diverse buildings and for their fabulous hospitality in explaining their conservation to us until next time my friends, slangeva 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 <laughs> no, I it. no. Very <laughs> was it
2: <laughs> okay no <laughs> that was with my best german accent <laughs>